The contents of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to HealthKick. I'm Tim Boreham. The notion of dogs on dope and cats on cannabis might inspire mirth in some people. But just as medical marijuana is a serious business for humans, it's also very relevant for our four-legged friends. Now, the ASX-listed CanPal Animal Therapeutics is a leader in the field, working on treatments for canine osteoarthritis and skin conditions, among other things. And when CanPal listed in late 2017, it was the only pure play listed animal cannabis company in the world. So it's uh, certainly been a pioneer. Now, I've got with me founder and CEO Leighton Mills to tell me more. Hi, Leighton. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great, Leighton. And, and uh, just to start out, what uh, motivated you to uh, uh, found the company? Uh, yeah, look, it was, it was really an unmet need and, and looking at gaps and opportunities in the marketplace. So about five years ago, late 2015, uh, medical cannabis and, and cannabis in general was really starting to explode. And that was... Uh, led by some pioneers in the U.S. market, in particular California, where where uh, consumer goods uh, uh, were being developed using some of these compounds. And I'm, I'm a consumer goods guy. I've been in the business for, for over 10 years now, developing healthier alternatives for products for both humans and animals. And so looking at that market uh, was very attractive to me, seeing that it was a trend that was going to grow. So, so in about 2016, I really started to research a little bit more and initially, uh, from the from the perspective that it would be a fantastic uh, platform to access compounds to develop into unique consumer goods, but the more that I researched cannabinoids, which are the active compounds in the cannabis plant, the more that I could see there was therapeutic potential to, to potentially take some of these active compounds and 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 sort of uh, go further than just a consumer good, but but clinically validated therapeutic products for companion animals. So it was really a combination of my experience in the consumer goods industry, my focus on on healthier alternatives uh, for humans and animals, and then seeing the opportunity in, in, in the marketplace. Yeah, okay, great. And, and, and what's fundamentally wrong with the uh, current treatments um, uh, for, for osteo, uh, for, for example? Uh, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong. I think it's just a matter of um, uh, changing trends and, 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 and having a variety of products that can serve as alternatives for, for, for potential patients, when I say patients, animals, that, that, and, and their, their, the owners of animals, uh, in terms of what sort of products they're accessing. So if you look at some of the trends towards natural alternatives, uh, there's a reason that we are seeing consumers go towards those products, and that's as a result of uh, less side effects. Um, you know, you look at opiates as an example, which is what's really uh, spark the boom in medical cannabis. Now, opiates have uh, a, a lot of negative side effects to them. Uh, there's obviously addictions, which are, which, are, which are terrible, and, and medical cannabis can provide a really good alternative. In, in the animal space, there hasn't been as much innovation in therapeutic products for pets. So if you look at the market-leading platform of treatments for osteoarthritis in dogs, it's traditionally non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And and NSAIDs, uh, or, or as, as they're known, uh, also have a lot of potential side effects. Uh, they're, they're not great. 
not the greatest on metabolism. Um, they're associated with some side effects. And so providing veterinarians with access to alternatives, whether or not they're replacements, but just something they can use as part of multimodal treatments is something that we're seeing as a trend moving forward. So I don't necessarily think it's something that's fundamentally wrong, but they're just being able to provide access to new and innovative alternatives so that pet owners have more choice when they're looking at how they're going to treat their animals. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, and there's also sort of a fundamental dynamic, uh, isn't there, in that uh, our pets are um, living a lot longer and Absolutely. we're spending more on them. Yeah, totally. And look, and... and the funny thing about that is we are spending more on them. They're living longer, but then they're getting things like age-related diseases. So, you know, you see osteoarthritis, as an example, uh, is increasing as a result of uh, pets you know, living longer and being treated better. So it's it's kind of a catch-22. Um, you know, we're seeing some of the um, age-related diseases that are common in the human space translate over into the animal space. Yes, yes, like uh, dodgy knees and joints and, and arthritis. Well, yeah, things yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, now, now, canine osteoarthritis is your lead program. Uh, can you just outline where you are in uh, the development of it? Yeah, so, so CPAP1 is a, is our lead product and some development for some of the symptoms associated with, with, with pain and, uh, sorry, osteoarthritis, uh, namely pain and inflammation. Initially, that candidate evolved as a, a pain product for osteosarcoma pain, which is a form of bone cancer. Tim, I think we talked about that a, you know, almost two or three years ago. And as we, yes, we did, got, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. As we got into the development of that product, what we realized was that um, getting access or being able to access uh, a large cohort of animals to be able to explore pain in that sort of uh, in, 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 in that indication would be more difficult. So we have been using an osteoarthritis model as an easier accessible uh, model to look at pain and inflammation uh, in, 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 in companion animals. So in terms of the stage of development, uh, you know, I think since the last time we talked, which was, geez, when we probably listed 2017. Yes, I uh, think it was, yes. Yeah, yeah. Look, we've completed research in over 130 animals now using combinations of THC and CBD, the two active compounds in the cannabis plant. Uh, we've completed some really robust pharmac pharmacokinetic work. And when I, I say robust, I mean that, you know, we've been looking at combinations of the cannabinoids, uh, what happens when uh, companion animals, uh, particularly dogs, uh, consume those products, both fed and unfed. So it's a really, really robust understanding of, of, of what's actually happening when animals consume some of these compounds. Uh, so we finished a lot of that work. Um, we, we then moved into some biomarker work, looking at gene expression and, um, and, and cytokines and chemokines to look at potential mode of actions. And we have just recently finished uh, our, uh, well, the live phase of our first uh, study into diseased animals. So looking at a cohort of dogs with osteoarthritis uh, so in terms of phase, I would say we're, you know, looking at the human space, we'd be more aligned as phase two. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot of robust PK work. We've now worked on uh, uh, the toxicology program, been uh, completing a battery of toxicology studies in the last two or three years. Uh, and I've also just completed a target animal safety study. So, so a pilot three-month TAS study, which is a, a really important regulatory study as well. So... Yeah, it's pretty exciting being at that sort of stage. We've opened an INAD, which is an investigational new animal drug application with the FDA. So we've started our regulatory communications too. So it's, um, you know, we're making some really good progress. Yeah, okay. okay. And, and is it hard to uh, recruit the animals? Um, obviously, they, they don't have uh, too much choice at the end of the day. Yeah, so yeah, it depends yeah. on the, the owner's mindset. Um, are they amenable? 
Uh, it, it wasn't too difficult for us to uh, recruit animals um, uh, per se. When, 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 you, you know, when you look at a cohort of studies that have been done and the average, the average time it takes to recruit animals, the challenging thing was that we were doing that during COVID and that made things a little bit more difficult. So we had initially set out to recruit 60 animals for that study. Uh, we ended up ending the study with 46. Um, it just became really difficult as a result of the social distancing implemented by the Australian government to um, to do that. And, and we've had some really strong momentum and we didn't want to lose that. So we made the decision to end that study early. I mean, it's still a pilot study. Uh, so And we're still in that phase two stage. So it didn't necessarily matter that we were ending the study early. And, and we felt that we had, uh, you know, a pretty good data set uh, by, um, by finishing that with 46 anyway. So I think the only challenges there were really in finishing out the, uh, the tail end of the study. Yeah, okay. And just to clarify, when you talk about the, the social distancing, is, is this social distancing the, uh, the, uh, the owners or the animals? Well, yeah, both. No, it's both? Uh, yeah, no. It, the, the most challenging thing is this, this, this was an eight-week study, right? And so involved in that, in that study are things like owner visits to the veterinary clinics. So owners would need to bring their animals into the clinics. Uh, and, and so what we saw happening during the peak uh, you know, COVID uh, situation was that veterinarians were, were, were implementing restrictions in terms of uh, owners could only come out to the veterinary clinic. They couldn't actually take their dog inside the clinic. So they'd have to come out to the parking lot. Veterinarians would have to come out, collect the animal, take them inside, you know, things like that. Um, that, that, that just made it quite challenging. And, and, and when you think about it from a veterinarian's point of view, their priority are emergency cases, uh, particularly in a situation like COVID. So in terms of the study, unfortunately, that doesn't take as high a priority as something like emergency cases when they have to you know, focus on keeping their business going. Yes, yes, that, that's understandable. Um, I mean, they're, they're an essential service, but uh, yeah, a priority on the, uh, on the emergency cases. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That was probably yeah. the only challenge, but you know, one that we overcame, and you know, we still, you know, we still were able to um, to complete the study, and you know, we're still we're now waiting on that to be um, to be finalised and and to get the uh, the data back, which would be nice. Okay, uh, when is that expected? Uh, roughly, uh, hoping this quarter. Hoping this quarter. At this stage, you know, we're anticipating that to be done by the end of the quarter. Um, yeah, which which that, that would be nice. Yeah, that's great. And and you've got the second string, of course, which which is Dermacan. Uh, and that's for a topic dermatitis, uh, isn't it? Can, can you tell us where you are with uh, that one? Yeah, yeah. Look, so we, we, we uh, started the development of that product uh, about three years ago. So right when we listed and the purpose of Dermacan was really for early revenue generation or near-term revenue generation. Uh, at the time that we listed, there was a different regulatory landscape uh, than there is now. And in particular for CBD derived from the hemp plant, uh, uh, it was it was much more easily accessible to be able to commercialise that product in Australia. After the listing process, uh, uh, there were changes to the to the, the regulatory landscape for CBD derived from hemp, and so we have been developing that as a veterinary medicine for Australia uh, Australian approval over the last two or three years, um, which which look has 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 turned out to be a a really positive thing because it's a barrier to entry. Um, animal health falls outside of the human health legislation, which means that there's no patient access scheme. So at the moment. There are no veterinarians that can actually sell a, a cannabinoid-based product to pet owners. And, um, and so in the last two or three years, we've been developing that for veterinary medicine approval as a skin and immune product uh, using an atopic dermatitis model. So in terms of the stage of development, we've just finished our, um, our safety and efficacy study, which we believe will give us enough data to now submit our 
registration dossier with the APVMA for regulatory approval as a veterinary medicine, which is which is really exciting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And of course, no, I presume no, nothing's been approved by way of a cannabis-based animal therapeutic in Australia. And um, I'm also wondering about the world. Is, is, is there anything out there? No, no, not at all. There, so at, at present, there are no federally approved uh, therapeutic products for companion animals using compounds derived from the cannabis plant. So, so again, you know, to my point earlier, is that animal health is very, very unique in that it falls outside of the human health legislation, meaning that in the human space, what we have is this patient access scheme. So a patient can go to their doctor and can get access to an unapproved drug you know, with, with compounds derived from the cannabis plant. But the key word there is unapproved because it's under this patient access scheme. Yeah, so special animal, access, yeah. That, that's right. So, so we don't have that in animal health. So in order for a veterinarian to be able to sell or prescribe a therapeutic product containing cannabinoids um, legally in any market, it needs to be approved, right? Or it needs to contain ingredients that have been approved. Uh, so, so, so if you look in the US, for example, in most states, a veterinarian can actually lose their license for talking about cannabis uh, uh, because there simply isn't a legislative pathway that allows them to do so. In Australia, it's a little bit different. We have a slightly different legislation than the United States and in some other countries. New Zealand is another example where we have a pathway to be able to get the product approved as a veterinary medicine, which would um, which would allow us to then to be able to commercialise that product through legal pathways. So, yeah, to your question and your point, uh, no, there are no federally approved um, animal health products containing cannabinoids at this present point in time. Yes, and it's all uh, well, the regulations. It's all very paradoxical, isn't it? Because uh, you've obviously got uh, recreational dope approved in a lot of parts of the US, and oh, medical yeah, absolutely. Uh, dope in uh, some states and not others, but but but, but not federally. But uh, in in in, uh, in a veterinary sense, it's uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's more restrictive. So so well, go figure. Yeah, totally. If you think about it like this, if you think about Canada, we're the first country. Uh, we're one of the first countries to legalise cannabis at a federal level, right? If you're, as long as you're 18, then you can walk into a dispensary and you can purchase cannabis oil. And so what we're seeing in, in, in places like Canada are pet owners are walking into dispensaries because they're legally allowed to do so, purchasing uh, cannabis oils and giving it to their pet and then going online and looking at dosing guidelines and how they use it because there's such demand for these products and there are no legislative pathways that allow for easy access. So as you point out, it, 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 it's totally um, it's totally ironic that you can walk in and, and, and buy some of these substances uh, as long as you're over 18, yet if you, you, know, if you want to give it to your animal, then, um, then, then you, know, you have no option or no guidance is probably the right word uh, yeah, to use. Yeah, so it's is, sort of a anecdotal evidence that it, that it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and look, and, and, and we know because we've been, we've been doing this research for, for, for over three years now. And as I point out, we've done research in over 130 dogs, very, very robust work. We understand the pharmacokinetics. We understand the differences between animals, the variability between animals, uh, what sort of dosage levels are safe uh, and, and ones where you might be seeing uh, side effects. And so this is information that veterinarians need. And in order to provide... Uh, uh, you know, pet owners with a safe alternative because what's happening at the moment, pet owners are just buying something and hoping that it's got what it says it's got in there is, um, you know, we, we, we want to be able to give veterinarians access to that information, but it, it's been made challenging by the legislative landscape. 
the, the positive thing is that we um, have made a lot of progress in the last few years and we're getting pretty close to being able to now commercialise some of those products uh, uh, through vet channels, which is, which is super exciting. Okay, fantastic. Um, now, our conversation has been a bit uh, specious, if you can call it as such. We, we, we've been talking about dogs. Um, yes. So I presume that's your focus because the dog market is the biggest yeah. market. Do cats get yeah. a look in? They, they, they did initially. And, and, and funnily enough, we had developed a protocol to commence doing some early research into cats. Um, um, the reason we didn't proceed with that was as a result of just focusing resources, you know, being a company that, you know, we make it a priority to be very, very, um, very, very focused in where we spend our, our, our capital, our, our cash burns low, um, you know, our corporate expenses, we try to keep them quite low and, and put most of our resources into research and development. And, and, and cats are a really tricky species. Um, they have a lot of different metabolic pathways, obviously, than, than, than dogs. Um, they're a lot more finicky in things they like and don't like. Um, and so for us, it was really thinking about, okay, well, if we have a, a certain amount of resources at this present point in time and we want to maximise those resources, then we should be really focusing them on the dog. And the reason being, you can translate a lot of that research. So as an example, for CPAT1, we're developing a toxicology or we have completed or are about to complete a toxicology program consisting of a number of toxicology studies that will be used that we can then take that to the regulators, the FDA, and put that in as part of our safety program. Now, in doing that, we have done a lot of work on CBD. And as a result of that, we can bring that research across into the Dermacan program, which saves us having to double up. So there's also some synergies uh, as well. So if there's any safety work that we're doing on dogs, uh, for either of those uh, those candidates, then we can sort of we we can maximise the use of that data set if that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. And and, and when it comes to uh, proving whether the therapy works or not, um, mm. with with skin conditions, the uh, yeah. the evidence is is, uh, is obviously visible. But uh, with um, uh, say arthritic uh, pain or or knees and joints, um, how, how do you know? Uh, in terms of pain, how do you know it's uh, it's uh, uh, working? The uh, yeah, the dog a, can't really tell you. I suppose it can howl, but he or she can't specifically uh, uh, indicate that it's uh, that it's working. Yeah, so there are some clinically validated methods um, at, at present. Uh, one, as an example, is a force plate test, which is which is essentially measuring the weight that an animal will put. On, on a pad. So for example, if an animal's, if you can imagine a dog walking on a, on almost like a treadmill, then every time it puts its paw onto the ground, it's putting weight onto a plate. And so what the force plate does is it me- measures how much weight is being placed onto that onto that pad or treadmill, right? And so an indication of, of whether or not the, the dog is getting relief from pain is if they're putting less or more pressure on that on that on that leg comparatively to the others. Um, so that's an example of a uh, an objective measure. But that typically what we see in, in drugs that are approved for osteoarthritis or pain for companion animals, namely dogs, are visual assessment scoring. So um, uh, 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 subjective scoring measures like canine pain brief inventory, which is a, a number of questions that both the owner and the veterinarian have to, uh, have to answer. And then also things like uh, lameness scoring. So taking the animal into the veterinarian and, as you point out, uh, a number of particular exercises that, 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 that the veterinarian might put the dog through and measuring things like wincing, pain, grimacing, you know, um, these are things that, that are also used. So there are a bunch of different models. Uh, the challenging thing is, and, and, and which is what we're trying to identify and, and one of the unique uh, things about us and our team, is, is to identify which models are, are more relevant for the drug you're researching because pain is so complex. 
there's you know there's no susceptive pain neuroceptive you know so so um, there's there's inflammation and pain as a result of that so so understanding what model is going to be best suited to the drug is is really where the magic is and for us uh, what a lot of this research is about and, and our recent osteoarthritis study is understanding what models are going to be best suited towards medical cannabis. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. And, and just just on the uh, the company's uh, f- financials, Leighton, uh, uh, as discussed, your your pre revenue at the moment because uh, no, nothing's approved uh, yet. Um, uh, you've got a, you've got just under two million dollars of cash, and yep. in the last quarter, I think you burnt about burnt through about uh, half a million dollars. Yeah. Um, d- does that suggest that suggests a need for a capital raising of some sort? Um, well, not necessarily. I mean, if you think about, um, uh, well, this year, for example, which we which we touched on in our recent quarterly, is we're expecting an R and D rebate uh, in the next month or so of about uh, about seven hundred and fifty thousand or, or thereabouts, or maybe just under seven hundred. So, so that's a really healthy capital injection that we're getting. Uh, and as you point out, we're just under two million. So, so let's just call it two and a half or whatever it might be. Um, uh, but, but really, I think the most important thing is that you know when we set out uh, to achieve this goal and we listed the company, one of the things we made a priority was getting to phase two and then giving us the option to either one continue to complete the development uh, internally and, and with our own capabilities, or, or, or alternatively getting to a stage that we would feel confident enough to then go out and seek development partners. And so when you think about CPAT one. We've done a lot of robust work over the last two or three years and we feel that by being at phase two, that gives you an opportunity to then have the choice to, to, to go out and seek development partners. And then, you know, there's a lot of precedence for animal drugs that have been in phase two and, and have sought a partner. And there's usually some pretty healthy uh, licensing fees, um, development milestones, um, covering of expenses that have been spent on the drug in the previous you know, the previous years. So uh, that, that's also something that we're really seriously considering and looking at now. Um uh, so to your question, at this stage, we're not presently at need for a capital raise. And, and, and um, you know, now that we've got Dermacan in a position where we can start seeking registration of that in multiple markets, uh, we've got CPAT1 now at phase two, where it would potentially allow us to then seek a development partner. I think there might be some other mechanisms as well. So I think we'll just play it out and see how the market uh, how the market moves over the next few months and, um, and, and then start to think about what our next step is moving forward. Sure. Okay, great. Um... Well, with uh, with all these dogs which are supposedly being o- overwalked uh, during these COVID uh, yeah, lockdowns, yeah. you, uh, you, you that that should uh, uh, broaden your market in terms of uh, joint and uh, knee yeah. condition. Well, absolutely. I mean, you think it's um, one of the one of the craziest things is I don't know if you follow this space, but there, there's a product for atopic dermatitis that was launched in 2017 or thereabouts. Now, don't quote me on that. I could be I could be off by a year, but uh, it was a product called Apoquel launched for, for uh, launched for atopic dermatitis or namely puritis, so itching more specifically. And it was launched by Zoetis Market Leader. Um, they have now hit peak sales of 500 million. Uh, they did that last year. Um, that's US as well. So if you can think about it from a, from an animal drug point of view, typically a blockbuster used to be. 100 million, you know, in the animal health space. Now we're seeing a product like that that's, that's generating 500 million US per annum. I mean, it's crazy. It's just the market is, um, the market has uh, just gone from strength to strength. And as you point out, a lot more walking. And maybe that's what's doing it. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, with that sort of addressable market uh, as a potential, um, you should be a, a howling successor as a company. Yeah. <laughs> <if I can, laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, look, it's it's a great market. A lot of good uh, key drivers. A lot of good dynamics. And and you know we um, are at a position now where we're starting to transition into commercialisation, which is exciting. So yeah, it's a good market to be in. Great, Leighton. Well, great to talk, and uh, I'll uh, follow your progress with uh, interest. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Appreciate you having me on. No problems.